Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hi, everyone. This is Pranay Bonagiri. Today, we have Dr. Minier, a board-certified pulmonologist and critical care medicine physician from the Bay Area, returning to the show to discuss some more super important critical care topics. So thank you for coming back on the show, Dr. Minier. And I figured we can just jump right in. I have three board-style questions that I wanted to go over with you. So first, we have a 55-year-old man with a history of chronic alcohol abuse who was admitted for acute pancreatitis. The patient was managed appropriately with fluids, pain management, and he was kept NPO. On the second day after admission, he developed worsening shortness of breath and his oxygen saturation dropped to 85%. On physical exam, he has no jugular venous distension, no leg edema, and his lung examination reveals bilateral crackles and ronchi. His cardiac examination is within normal limits. A chest x-ray shows bilateral infiltrates. The patient is then intubated and started on mechanical ventilation with an FiO2 of 100%. Arterial blood gas done after 30 minutes shows a pH of 7.32, PCO2 of 50 millimeters of mercury, and a PO2 of 54 millimeters of mercury. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, a massive pleural effusion? B, decompensated congestive heart failure? C, acute respiratory distress syndrome? Or D, a pulmonary embolism? So just looking at this question, it has a couple of uh, interesting things to note. They mentioned that you have bilateral crackles and ronchi. A lot of times when we hear crackles bilaterally at the lung bases, we start wondering, could we have CHF? But just shortly before that, they mentioned that there's no jugular venous distension and there's no leg edema, which means that you're probably, on based on physical exam at least, you're not dealing with a fluid overload state. The other thing is, if we were dealing with something like a pulmonary embolism, where it usually causes backing up of fluid and extra pressure on the right side of the heart, you would expect that that extra backup and failure of the right heart would cause you to have JVD or jugular venous dissension. So off the bat, immediately you're thinking, well, it doesn't sound a whole lot like CHF, and it doesn't sound a whole lot like a pulmonary embolism. The other thing is it also sounds like this was a more progressive worsening of the respiratory status as opposed to a sudden onset chest pain and shortness of breath that you see with pulmonary emboli. Now, the the ones that are left are a massive pleural effusion and acute respiratory distress syndrome. The fact that you're talking about bilateral breath sounds kind of tells you that you're probably not having a massive pleural effusion on one side because usually With a massive pleural effusion, you actually lose breath sounds on that side. So based on just physical exam findings in this um, question stem, you can jump to acute respiratory distress syndrome. But the important thing is for you to be able to say acute respiratory distress syndrome, you have to be able to say that it's not CHF. And the fact that they're showing you in the question stem that you don't have a CHF type picture, it does help you meet that definition, which is that it's bilateral infiltrates. It's not secondary to CHF or a fluid overload state. One of the other interesting things is 
he was admitted with acute pancreatitis. Acute pancreatitis is one of the known triggers of potential ARDS. What are some of the triggers? Acute pancreatitis can do it. Respiratory infections can do it. A lot of different things can trigger it, but that's why it's interesting that they also put in the question stem that the patient has chronic alcohol abuse and is coming in with acute pancreatitis, and then all of a sudden this happens. So just as a side note, some of the things you would want to know about acute respiratory distress syndrome, it's good for you guys to know the classification for ARDS, which has mild, moderate, and severe, and also the Berlin criteria for how to diagnose ARDS. So as part of the most recent criteria that had come out, essentially they were trying to incorporate the idea that it cannot be a fluid overload or CHF state that's causing your ARDS. And that's why they have PIPA-5, I believe, as part of the criteria. And then the other thing is you're supposed to have bilateral infiltrates. And then you use the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio to determine the severity. If you guys happen to forget it right before the boards, remember, you can always look on Wikipedia. They have the mild, moderate, severe. But essentially, it's 200 to 300 is mild, 100 to 200 is moderate, and 0 to 100 is severe. And so that's kind of some of the important things you guys want to know about acute respiratory distress syndrome. Also remember, you want to use small tidal volumes. So you're looking at 6 to 8 milliliters per kilogram. You're also allowing for permissive hypercapnia, so that PCO2 of 50 may be okay, even if your pH is a little lower, because we allow for permissive hypercapnia so that we can use lower tidal volumes. And then also keep in mind that proning is one of the things that helps mortality, so sometimes they like to ask about that in boards. What else can I answer on this question? Thank you for that great explanation. I think you covered most everything I wanted to talk about for ARDS. So one additional thing to expand on, like you mentioned, I feel like the boards really focus on differentiating between heart failure and ARDS because they can come in with like similar chest x-ray findings. Besides like physical exam findings, are there any laboratory abnormalities that can help you tell the difference or any like monitoring parameters that you can use to tell the difference between the two? There are. So one of the big ones that if they happen to give you in the question stem that you have an elevated BNP in a patient, beta natriuretic peptide, then that would be a situation where you're expecting an increased fluid state. But that would be probably the main thing that they might throw at you in that. But you have to also keep in mind, I don't think they would give you a question like this. But when you're looking at a pulmonary embolism, when we're defining submassive PEs, we do use BNP and troponin elevation as a way to define submassive PEs. But I doubt that that would be on your guys' level of boards. It would be more of a pulmonary level boards. So mainly, if they give you a BNP that's elevated, they're probably talking about CHF and not really throwing you in the direction of a pulmonary embolism, hopefully. I guess one of the other questions is, um, how can you differentiate ARDS from heart failure and cardiogenic shock? Well, cardiogenic shock, you know that you're automatically talking about a shock state, so you're needing pressors. From heart failure, that five of PEEP that they require in the most recent criteria for ARDS is part of the reason for why they put that in there is so that you can say, hey, I have positive pressure in the chest and I still have bilateral infiltrates, and my P to F ratio is still not good. So that's part of how they do that. 
hopefully that kind of answers the questions regarding this question. Yeah, I think it, it did perfectly. I think we can move on to the second question. So in this case, we have a 72-year-old man who was in the intensive care unit for respiratory failure, and he's receiving total parenteral nutrition. Now he's exhibiting signs of sepsis. Blood cultures are drawn, and they're positive for a candida infection, and treatment is started with capsofungin. The central venous catheter is removed, and the patient is responding well to treatment after five days. Which of the following is the next step in management? Is it A, an abdominal CT to rule out a deep-seated tissue infection? B, abdominal MRI to rule out a deep-seated tissue infection? C, an ophthalmology consult and evaluation? Or D, an early discontinuation of the, of the capsofungin as the patient has started to improve? So this one's actually one that also existed when I was studying for board. And this was one where I just memorized the fact that if I saw this question, the answer is ophthalmology consult and evaluation. Now, the thing you have to realize is that we usually don't have early discontinuation of antifungals. Usually there's a set course. Now, we do prolong it, but I don't know what they mean by early discontinuation of therapy, whether if they're meaning just a short duration versus a prolonged duration. But there's defined days of treatment for candidemia and also for candida infections. In this case, we're talking candidemia. So you have to do the defined course. And if it doesn't respond within that time period, you extend it. You don't really shorten it. Now, some of the important things to mention related to candida. One is that because of the existence of candida glabrata, it is time where it would show up on boards where they're going to expect you to use things like caspofungin and mycofungin when you're dealing with uh, empiric treatment for a candida until you know what type of candida it is and what its sensitivities are. Is that because this new species is resistant to some of the other drugs? Yes, yes, that is totally correct. Uh, Because unfortunately, fluconazole tends to not work on candida glabrata because it has some resistance to it. And so usually that's why we start out with things like caspofungin, mycofungin, and that group. Just as a side note, one other thing to mention is if you have an abdominal perforation, there's also a study that was suggesting that in patients that have abdominal perforations, there's improved mortality with adding fluconazole. And so that may or may not also show up on boards, because I think it's been around for at least two years, it may be getting on to three. But the one that will more likely show up is Candida glabrata, because they were talking about that during my board review two or three years ago. So I think it'll show up for you guys also. Granted, my board review was related to pulmonary and critical care, but I still think if it was enough time for it to show up on mine, it may show up on your guys's too. Should we go on to the next question? I did have one or two follow-up questions for candidemia. So besides total parenteral nutrition, are there any other risk factors we should know about for developing candidemia? That's a good point you bring up. I totally forgot to mention that. No yes, worries. That's why, why a lot of critical care doctors, ICU doctors, hate TPN because your risk goes up for candidemia with TPN. Some of the other things, well, abdominal perforation can be a risk factor. The other thing is also there's certain types of immunodeficiencies that can predispose you 
But to be honest with you, I doubt they're going to ask about those. They do show up on internal medicine boards, but you guys are studying for step three. I don't think they're going to quite go there for you guys, unless you guys are doing internal medicine or peds or you're doing allergy immunology boards. But technically, there, yes, there are other risk factors. To be honest, I think the best thing to do is don't worry about that. It won't <laughs> show up for you guys. It'll show up when you're doing your specialty board. Yeah. So uh, anything that can cause immunosuppression, basically. Yes. Yeah. Immunosuppression can be a risk factor, especially if somebody's been long-term on steroids. But there are also inherited immune system weaknesses, one that has to do with granulomatous disease. It's one of the rare deficiencies that a person can have, and that has a tendency to have a risk factor for candidemia. I believe one of the complement deficiencies can also occasionally put you at risk for candida, but it's more so for encapsulated organisms. So that's, that's all I can add on this question. That's all I know to add. Is there anything else you would add that you've run across? No, I mean, not really. <laughs> One quick follow-up. I just wanted to talk about treatment choices for Canada because I feel like fungal drugs are not ones we see too often. So if you have like a quick review of them, I think that would be great. Sure, of course. Yeah. So first off, if you're doing empiric treatment, we already touched on this. You want to be using mycofungin, caspofungin, so antifungals that would cover for candida glabrata. When we're talking about things like CNS infections with candida, then we start talking about use of amphotericin B, which is one of the things that we save for fungal infections out of the CNS. And we also save it for when we have things like cavitary lung lesions and cavitary type of fungal infections where it's really intense infections and abscesses. The other thing is, of course, fluconazole. But in those kinds of cases, we're talking more of like oral thrush or a esophageal thrush, or you're talking about a vaginal candida infection. And most of the cases where you're either talking about something where it's a lower risk thing, if you happen to give the wrong antifungal, or it's resistant to it. Or it's a case where you actually have the sensitivities, and that's why you're using fluconazole and the azoles. But that's that's all I know that I can add on to there. Great. Thank you. So, yeah, we can move on to our third and final question now. So we have a 32-year-old woman in the intensive care unit who developed sudden onset shortness of breath and palpitation. She was admitted to the ICU two days ago following coronary artery bypass graft surgery. Her vital signs are notable for a heart rate of 120 and a blood pressure of 85 over 55. On physical examination, the heart sounds quiet and you note a 12 millimeter of mercury drop in blood pressure when the patient inhales. Which of the following is the best next step in management? Is it A, a chest radiograph, B, a CT of the chest, C, a bedside echocardiogram, or D, an electrocardiogram? So the first question I have for you guys is what happens when we take an inhalation? And why is it that in OMM, we used to focus so much on making somebody's inspirations better, even if they're in the ICU? So the thing is you add preload. So you're increasing your preload. So the question is, why would your increased preload cause your pressures to drop? And the only situation that would cause you to have that is if you're dealing with some kind of cardiac failure. 
So there's something wrong going on with the heart that's causing you to drop. Now, the interesting thing is I'm cheating and I'm looking at their explanation that they have here. And they're saying that they think that this is a cardiac tamponade. Cardiac tamponade were actually very preload dependent. So one of the reasons why someone who has cardiac tamponade, you don't want to diurese them and instead you want to give them fluids is because they're very preload dependent. So I'm actually interested to see what their explanation is for why in this case, when the patient took a deep breath, the patient's pressure dropped. I'm looking through this and it's talking about the patient has pulses paradoxus and normally you should have an increase of in your pressures. And so by definition, you're defining pulses paradoxus by having a drop in your pressure with inspiration. So I don't know. Do you have something to add to that portion other than Uh, that my guess would have been that you need an echo because of the fact that this sounds like you're in cardiogenic shock and you would have to remember that the way you define pulses paradoxus is that when you take a deep breath, your pressure drops instead of rising. Yeah, I think they were going for cardiac camponade in this question. And like you said, they wanted you to recognize the pulses paradoxus. I feel like they always kind of stress these interesting physical findings on boards. And then the heart sounds being quiet, I think was supposed to give you a clue that there is some some sort of pericardial effusion around the heart. And then that should prompt you to get an echo. So yeah, no, I, I agree with your answer choice, see a bedside echo. I think the other ones would not have given you the proper information you need if you were worried about cardiac tamponade. So some of the follow-up questions I had about this Besides kind of like the quiet heart sounds and the pulses paradoxes, what other kinds of symptoms and signs are you looking for in a patient who you suspect has cardiac tamponade? Well, nowadays, uh, most intensivists have training to be able to do bedside echoes. So a lot of times we do echoes at bedside, and that's how we, if we're suspecting something being wrong with the heart. And so a lot of times you may see it that way. The other thing is if you had have happened to have done a chest radiograph on this patient, you would have noticed that you would have a enlarged mediastinum. And that should be a immediate thing. So if you start seeing an enlarged mediastinum, there's a short list of things that you start worrying about. One of them is, especially if it's the lower part of it, then you start worrying about cardiac tamponade. The other thing would be, of course, problems with the aorta, and in particular, aortic aneurysms and dissections and things like that because sometimes that can cause enlargement of your mediastinum. But the fastest thing that usually would give you the answer would be the echo. What are some of the other things? I think I might have to defer to you on this one, because some of this stuff, it's been a while since I did the board things that they love to put in the question for cardiac tamponade. Yeah, so basically I think what you should look for on board specifically is the back triad. You're looking for the hypotension, distending neck veins, and the muffled heart sounds. I feel like whenever we see a question at our level about cardiac tamponade, they try to include one or two of those things. But besides that, like you mentioned, I think echo is usually the first thing that'll give you some information. When you talk about echo, what are you actually seeing that tells you a patient might have cardiac tamponade? So one of the big things is you're going to see fluid outside of the heart. That's the first and foremost thing. The next thing is you're also going to see problems with the heart's function. And that's part of also why we're preload dependent. 
is because your right side of your heart in particular is very prone to pressure from outside, keeping it from being able to fill well and work well. And so that's why you become very preload dependent. Shoot off of that, by the way, I'm cheating a little bit. But one of the other things that I do remember does tend to show up on boards is knowing that you can get low voltage on your EKG. And that does show up on boards because I think I had a question like that where I had low voltage on the EKG. And I don't remember if it was on actual boards or if it was a board question, but I do remember that was there. And then electrical alternans is the other one that they love on boards too. So those are the EKG findings that tend to love to show up. And I'm cheating on that one. <laughs> but to be honest, I think our cardiologists would be better at this question than I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, for some of my other colleagues that love cardiac stuff more. But what else can I answer for you guys on this one? I think one thing would be just the next steps. You, you figure out they have cardiac tamponade. What are you, what are you supposed to do next? So for first and foremost, you're not going to diurese the patient. You're going to give them volume and you're going to be calling a specialist. Which specialist? You're going to be calling your cardiologist. So interventional cardiologists can do bedside pericardiocentesis and can place drains if need be. The other people who can do this are CT surgeons or interventional radiology. But I think the one that they're going to guess that you're going to guess is going to be calling cardiology. And so when something like this is going on, call cardiology and they'll get the appropriate people involved so that they can drain the fluid out. Uh, and occasionally you see critical care or ER physicians, if it's an emergency and the patient's crashing, trying to do the pericardiocentesis themselves. This is definitely not something that a resident or a med student is going to do on their own because um, I have seen cases where it's gone bad and patients have had uh, ruptures of walls and things like that because the needle accidentally went all the way through mm. and into the heart and stuff yeah. like that. So call your cardiologist and you're attending. But that's about what I can add on this one. Yeah, and those were the three questions I, I wanted to go over with you today. Do you have any burning topics that you might have thought of that uh, it would be good for us medical students to know about that we can review in five minutes, maybe? Sure. One of the other things that's good to talk about, just as a side note, another situation where you need to give volume, where it's counterintuitive from what you would expect, is when you have a right-sided MI. How are you going to know that you have a right-sided MI? You're going to be looking at V1. And in V1, instead of having SD elevation, you're going to see SD depression. And so when you see that, one of the things you want to think about is, do I need to do a right-sided EKG? If that's the case, where you're thinking that you have a right-sided MI, this is a situation where you cannot use nitrates because it will cause the patient to crash and potentially code on you. And in this type of a situation, when you're looking at a right-sided MI, you actually want to give volume again, because the patient becomes preload dependent. Anytime the right side of the heart is having issues, it's different than when the left side has issues. Your concern is that if you drop the preload, that all of a sudden the patient will crash. And the two big scenarios that that happens one is cardiac tamponade, and the other one is a right-sided MI. And they do like to ask about right-sided MIs also on boards. That does come up. Let's see, what else would be a good topic that's related? What about pericarditis? 
how do we define pericarditis? Do you happen to remember the findings that they love to pimp you on uh, during rotations and shows up on boards? What are the findings that you see on an EKG for pericarditis? There's two types of findings that are uh, classical for pericarditis. So from what I remember, you expect to see PR depressions and ST elevations uh, diffusely across all the leads in the EKG. And then on physical exam, you might expect to hear the gratchy fibrous rub that they sometimes describe in boards. Personally, I've never heard it, but sure. I, that's, that's what I hear it sounds like. So the big thing is you're going to see changes all over the EKG. So that's the big thing. Uh, that's the biggest thing. The other thing is also a lot of times the patient, when they come in, the type of thing that they're going to tell you on the question stem is that the patient's sitting forward and that they have chest pain and the chest pain gets better when they're leaning forward because it, when the heart's not touching any of the walls, it tends to do a little better pain-wise, which is also another interesting thing to note. Now, when we talk about pericarditis, what are some of the treatments that we look at? Should we give someone with pericarditis prednisone? That's one of the things that they love to ask about on boards. The answer is prednisone is not going to be the one that you're going to pick. The things that you're going to use are colchicine or you're going to be using NSAIDs. Um, The reason why is because if you take the prednisone away, as soon as you stop it, then you have a higher incidence of having a recurrence of the pericarditis. So that's why usually you're either looking at NSAIDs or you're looking at use of colchicine. Anything else that comes to your mind that you'd like to talk about? No, that was great. Thank you for bringing up those topics. That's all I had for you. You know, once again, thank you for doing this podcast with me. Yeah, and we can end it there. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. You guys have a good day.